Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant, and Chris Smith. Good evening, Dr. Chris. Hello. How are you? I'm re- no, I'm really good, actually, and it's great to be here. And I'm just looking at the charts for the podcasts all over the world. Uh-huh. And Ask the Naked Scientist is currently sitting at the top of the American charts. It's in position number 17, right next door to Sesame Street. Really? <laughs> yeah. My goodness. It's good to know that Sesame Street is just slightly more popular than we are on podcast, anyway. Right, just about uh, Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm very good. And, and I'm also very pleased to see this news story, which has uh, surfaced this week. It's a science story, uh, which vindicates a lot of what people say goes on in nightclubs and it's a piece of research that's been done by Marcus Manafo and he's a researcher at Bristol University. I, I met him actually when we were making a TV programme about a year and a half ago. Yep. He's a great guy and this week he's decided to publish a piece of research on what happens when you drink and that's alcohol and what effect does that have on how attractive you think people are. He recruited uh, 84 students at his university, half of them were male and half of them were female, and they were randomised to receive either an alcoholic drink or a non-alcoholic drink in a random order. So they did both types of drink, Mm -hmm. but one day apart. And after they'd had the drink, and the drink contained alcohol to about the equivalent of one glass of wine, they were shown 20 faces and they were asked to assess them and give them a mark uh, in terms of their attractiveness. And when they compared the with alcohol marks and the non-alcohol marks, they found that once people had had a drink, they marked all these people as at least 10% more attractive than they had done when they weren't drinking. And this solves a long-standing conundrum, which is that when people go out and do naughty things when they're drunk, is it because they're just a bit more disinhibited? Or is there something more subtle going on? And it's not just about finding someone more attractive. It's not just about sort of wanting to leap into bed with people and on all these sayings like beer goggles and stellar vision and things like that. This is all about how alcohol might affect the way in which we communicate with each other and also how we get information from people's facial expressions. And so what they're interested in is is now beginning to understand a bit more about how alcohol alters our perception of emotion. Because, of course, alcohol fuels enormous numbers of fights and other types mm. of aggressive behaviour. So if we can understand a bit about how it affects and, and distorts our view of what other people mean and are saying, we might be able to get a handle on, on why alcohol causes people to behave this way and therefore try and help them not to behave like that. Well, I'm sure there was no um, shortage of volunteers for that <laughs> particular experiment. Especially <clears throat> as they were students. And yes. students are perfect study subjects because they'll do anything for A, a drink and B, money. They gave them a tenner to take part in the study. Well, it's all right for some, isn't it? Dr Chris, it is time now to uh, introduce our first caller onto the show to ask the Naked Scientist. So let's uh, say good evening to Bob. Hello, Bob. Good evening. What's your question for Dr Chris? Well, basically, it's uh, it's a topical subject at the moment. Um, At the moment, it's very cloudy where we are in Colchester, 
and there's no rain coming from it, but you have equally dense cloud, and, and it, that'll chuck it down. I just wonder why sometimes it'll chuck it down and sometimes it won't. Well, it's all to do, Bob, with the size of the water droplets in the cloud and the amount of updraft, that's the wind going upwards, that's supporting those droplets. Because let's look at where clouds come from. Well, when you have a cloud, what's happened is that the sun's energy, heat, which is hitting each square metre of the ground with energy at the rate of about one kilowatt, so that's like shining about a one-bar electric fire at each square metre of the Earth's surface. When that energy hits the Earth's surface, it gives water molecules energy, warms them up, they vaporise, evaporate, and turn into water molecules that are spread out in the, in the atmosphere and they rise because the, you've got a column of warm, non-dense rising air. This goes up in the air, expands, and as it does so it cools and eventually it reaches a height where the temperature is such that the water can no longer remain as a loose vapour and the particles begin to aggregate into droplets. But at the same time you've still got wind coming up underneath which is pushing these droplets up in the air. And all the time that the gravity trying to pull the droplets down is less than the updraft, the wind pushing the droplets up in the air, then they stay airborne. But when those conditions change, and either the droplets get much bigger, so they weigh more, so gravity is pulling them down more, or the updraft, the wind pushing them up, is less, then they begin to rain down. And that's when you get rain. And the things that can affect that equation are if the clouds are forced to rise very quickly, and if you make the clouds rise very quickly, then they gather more water, because as the air cools further, it can hold less water because it's colder, so the droplets get bigger, and also other climatic conditions can, can make a shift, and pollution can make a difference as well. And it's interesting, because if you look in clouds at what actually causes the water droplets to form in the first place, even dandruff has a role to play here. Scientists have done experiments where they've flown aeroplanes through clouds and collected samples of what's in them, and at the centre of all of the cloud droplets, then you'll find tiny particles of things like pollen, dust, pollution, and even, as I say, dandruff. And more recently, scientists have discovered even bacteria that live in clouds. There's a whole species of bacteria, Pseudomonas syringae, which uh, use clouds as a way of getting around. They live on plants, the wind blows them up into the air. When they get into the cloud, they have a very clever surface chemistry on the bacterium that is uh, aligned in just the right way so that water molecules lock on in the configuration as though they want to form ice. And this causes all the water droplets to form preferentially around the bacterium. The bacteria then get rained out of the cloud back onto the ground and then they colonise another plant and then the whole cycle repeats itself. So clouds are a whole living ecosystem that we didn't even appreciate before. But that, that's basically why it's down to the size of the droplets. OK, thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Bob. Now, Dr Chris is in his armchair studio and Dr Chris, we would like to know from John of Peterborough, he asks, if a wasp or bee gets into a car and travels a large distance and then was let out, could it find its way back home and how far would it have to travel to get lost? Dr Chris? I think it's uh, very unlikely that bees and wasps, if they travelled a considerable distance, would find their way home. But here's some interesting stats about bees and bumblebees. They can travel enormous distances from their home nest when they forage for pollen and nectar. I think the average bumblebee is a very big, robust bee. It can store a lot of energy and it's got big muscles. Bumblebees can travel about 10 miles from home and find their way back to their nest every time um, in their foraging trips. And the way they do that is because bees, including bumblebees, are sensitive to ultraviolet. Their eyes can see ultraviolet light and the sun obviously bombards the earth with ultraviolet radiation. And because ultraviolet can penetrate clouds... Uh, it doesn't matter that, that it's a cloudy day, the bees can still see the ultraviolet from the sun coming through, so they use the, the light from the sun as a sort of compass. 
and they have tuned their body clock to the position of the sun in the sky so they know how to correct the direction they're flying in relative to the sun as the day goes on in order to always fly in the right direction so they can find their way home. That's assuming, of course, that they know how they got to where they went in the first place. And so the question about if you took a bee or a wasp a long way away from home and released it, the chances are it would never find its way back again because it wouldn't have that same frame of reference knowing how far it's gone in a certain direction. Scientists have done experiments on ants. They did this fairly recently, published it in the journal Science. And what they did was to show that ants use visual cues, so they look around to find objects that they can match up to, to the direction of travel, so they use them as a visual reference. But they also count their steps, and so they know how many steps they're taking in any direction. And the scientists proved that they're doing this by taking hairs off the back of a pig, cutting some of the legs off an ant, gluing the hairs back onto the ant but the hairs were much longer than the ant's legs were normally so the ant was taking much bigger strides than it would do normally and the ants which had these extra long legs like ants on stilts overshot their own nest because they were walking much further than they should and this showed that they were counting steps rather than doing it just by visual guidance so it's a combination of things that these animals use in order to find their way around interesting stuff Another question for you, Chris. Uh, this time, Keith from Kettering would like to know, what are the dangers of GM foods, if there are any? Well, what are GM foods? Well, GM foods are, means genetically modified food. And what this means is putting genes into plants that wouldn't be there naturally. Um, although there may be genes that could be there naturally in another plant, but not in that specific plant that's been modified. The way in which scientists get these genes into plants is uh, via a number of different ways. One is that you can use a bacterium. There's one uh, kind of bacterium, which is um, tumefaciens, Agrobacterium tumefaciens. And these bacteria are responsible for causing a disease called crown gall disease. This is almost like plant cancer. If you look at some plants, they'll form these big blebs on the side of the plant. And this is where tissue is growing too much. And the, the bacteria make plants do that in order to make a nice home for the bacteria to live in. And the way in which they achieve this is by injecting into the plant cells some bacterial genes that then insert themselves into the plant's genome and make the plant cells grow a lot more. Well, what scientists did was to work out how the bacteria were doing that and then steal the piece of machinery, which is called a transposon, from the bacterial cells and use it to put their own genes into that transposon so that they'll get inserted inside the plant's genome. And, of course, when you do it safely with genes that you actually want to insert, then you don't get any negative side effects. The kind of things that you can use this to do to plants is to, for instance add the ability to fend off certain types of insect pests. So you make the plants make some kind of toxin. Scientists have found a way to make a, a toxin which is, which is secreted by certain bacteria get expressed in the plant cells so that if an insect comes along and eats the plant, then the toxin goes into the insect's body and kills it. So it deters various insects. The, the downside of doing that is that if you have an insect which you don't want to kill and it is a rare species or it's something which isn't really a plant pest but it might eat the plants occasionally, then this could also be, be damaged in this way. Another approach has been to add genes to plants which enable them to resist certain weed killers. This means that you could come along with a, a crop sprayer, spray weed killer all over the crop to get rid of the weeds, but the plants wouldn't be harmed. And this means you can use very selective weed killers or weed killers at, at a, a different dose than you would do normally, or more powerful weed killers at much lower doses than you would have to with, with less powerful weed killers. And this is a very good way of, of making sure you don't contaminate your 
your yield. So you can get very high yields from your crop, for example. So there's a whole range of, of reasons why scientists want to do this. You can add genes, for example, that make plants able to resist salt in the soil. So that if you if you live in a country which has got a problem with salt buildup in the soil because of low rainfall, uh, or you've got salinity in the soil because of flooding from seawater, you can add genes that make plants quite capable of tolerating that salt. And so you could add that to, to yield to, to wheat or barley or something and make those crops grow well on the, into those conditions. So there's a lot of benefits. Um, what are the downsides? Well, uh, we are tinkering with nature. We don't really know necessarily where in the plant's genome some of these genes have been inserted. So, for instance, there might be a gene in the plant which isn't necessarily essential for the plant to grow. Say we had a tomato and I added a gene to it which made the tomato resistant to some kind of pest, some caterpillar or something, well, well that, that, that gene I've added might insert itself inside another one of the plant's genes and damage that gene. Now, that gene is not essential for the plant to grow, but it might break down things in the plant which are potentially toxic to me. And this means that uh, although I've got a nice, ripe, juicy-looking tomato, perhaps there's something building up in it, which uh, it doesn't harm the tomato, but it could be harmful to me. And, and at the moment, we need to do tests to make sure that that's not happening. But as far as I know, scientists are pretty comfortable with the fact that they know relatively well what they're doing. And, and I think that in the future, when Earth's sort of farmable agricultural land surface area uh, is reduced because what we think is going to happen with things like climate change and an expanding world population is that we will have less land to farm then we're going to need to be able to farm the land we have got even better and that means we're going to need crops that can tolerate a variety of conditions produce good yields and potentially do that without having to us to having to resort to other things that, that might poison the environment so i think that there are pros and cons uh, that we do need to be exploring this technology because we're going to need it. We shouldn't just blanket ban it. We should explore it, but we need to do it sensibly. If you like Ask the Naked Scientists, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientists, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week, we take a look at the latest news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science with the Naked Scientists podcast on the web at nakedscientists.com slash podcast. Gus in Massingham has sent an email in saying that when he was at school many years ago, I have to say there was the odd pupil who suffered from diabetes. In recent years, I've learned that this was type 1. But nowadays, one reads that over 2 million people in Britain alone now suffer from type 2 diabetes. Why is this, Dr. Chris? And do these people also have something in their genetic makeup which triggers this? Sure. Well, diabetes is either a relative or an absolute lack in the blood of the hormone insulin. And insulin is a small protein which gets made by the pancreas, which is an organ which secretes lots of things, including not just insulin, but also the digestive juices that help you to break down your lunch. And what insulin does is travel in the bloodstream to visit virtually every cell in the body 
and those cells have on their surface receptors which are like chemical docking stations for insulin and when the insulin locks onto the docking station it tells the cell to open up various channels on the surface of the cell that grab glucose, sugar, from the bloodstream and move it into the cell and what that means is that if you don't have enough insulin then the amount of glucose in the blood becomes too high and why that's bad is that when you have too much glucose in the bloodstream it begins to react abnormally with other things and other structures around the body so you get these things called advanced glycation end products as they're known and this is where glucose sticks itself onto some of the proteins in your tissues and makes those proteins much thicker and heavier than they should be and this is over a lifetime bad news because what it does is it causes blood vessels to not work very well it causes cells to be starved of oxygen in some tissues and the affected tissues include the kidney and this means that over a lifetime you can get kidney damage and you can then get uh, increased blood pressure which is obviously a bad thing it can also affect the eyes and in your eyes the retina has uh, one of the highest metabolic rates in the body and if you don't supply the retina with enough blood then the tissue there can begin to not work properly. So the retina has a way of secreting factors which make sure it gets enough blood flow. So if you don't have enough blood supply because you have chronic diabetes then the retina secretes factors including factors called VEGF which is vascular endothelial growth factor and that makes blood vessels grow into the retina but they don't grow healthily. They grow in an abnormal and tortuous and twisty way which makes them leaky and as a result they can leak blood and other things into the retina and this makes the retina become less able to see clearly. And that's why researchers and, and doctors are trying to work out ways to, to repair that damage using things like lasers. You blast the damaged blood vessels with a laser and this seals them off and stops them leaking. Now when we talk about diabetes we're talking about not just one form of diabetes, we're talking about two because there's diabetes type 1 and diabetes type 2. They're both associated with too much sugar in the bloodstream but type 1 diabetes tends to come on at a young age, about age 12. This is caused by an abnormal attack by the immune system on the cells in your pancreas that make insulin so the immune system comes in, kills all the cells in the pancreas and the beta islets of Langerhans that make insulin and you don't have any insulin. And in type 2 diabetes, you have plenty of insulin, at least initially, but for some reason the cells around the body become deaf to it. It's a bit like you being exposed to too much loud music and you can no longer hear the, the music properly. Well, that's what happens with the cells in type 2 diabetes. And type 2 diabetes is usually associated with older age groups. It's called maturity onset diabetes. And it also tends to be associated with carrying too much weight. So people who gain weight, for some reason, this seems to make you have what's called insulin insensitivity. So you, have, uh, you need more and more insulin in order to keep your blood sugar under control. And in the end, the pancreas is just not able to cope. And this, this eventually leads to, to an excessive glucose in the bloodstream. The consequences, though, are pretty much the same for both of them. You have too much glucose in the bloodstream. There are some genes which are linked to this. Um, type 2 diabetes is strongly genetic, and scientists have found a number of genes which do seem to be able to place you at an increased risk of the condition. Uh, type 1 is less clearly defined. Um, there are some genes that are linked to it, but it's also linked, we think, to infection. And scientists uh, suspect that there might be some kind of mimicry going on here. It might be that people catch some kind of infection, uh, probably a viral infection, because you tend to see little surges and peaks and troughs in diabetes type 1 at uh, certain times of the year, and you also tend to see it uh, in geographical hotspots as well at different times of the year, which suggests it might be some infectious factor. And what they think goes on is that the virus comes in, the virus triggers the immune response, and the virus 
does what's called mimicry. It makes the immune system, or it fools the immune system into attacking itself because the fact that some factor on the virus looks a bit similar to some structure on your own body. So you end up with an immune response against your own body. And that's why you get this type 1 diabetes. In terms of treating it, of course, we, we use insulin. This is the hormone which you're missing. So insulin these days is made artificially. You program bacteria to make the insulin and then you clean up the bacterial culture, get the insulin out, purify it, and people inject insulin and that replaces what they're missing. In the long term, though, scientists are exploring the possibility of putting the cells that have been lost back into the body so that you can restore your ability to make insulin again. And that's some way off because, of course, you have to overcome the problem of why has the person got diabetes in the first place and just putting more cells into an unhealthy environment might not actually be curing the problem, it might just be offsetting some of the symptoms. Uh, and the other question is how you stop those cells being rejected from the body unless they're genetically compatible with the individual who, who you're giving them to. And if they are genetically compatible with the individual you're giving them to, uh, won't they just end up diseased like the first ones you had? So there's a number of problems they've got to overcome, but uh, I think that they are slowly chipping away at these problems and, and we, our understanding of, of diabetes gets better every day. We have uh, Stephen on the telephone. Good evening, Stephen. What's your question? Hello. Hello. Um, when you talk about planets and things, how do you weigh Earth? Because we're on it, so how can you weigh it or the moon, for example? How can you weigh something that you can't touch or something that you're on? Ah, that's a very good question, Stephen. Uh, and the answer is that it's all done mathematically. Archimedes, the famous Greek guy, once famously said, give me a lever long enough and a point far enough away to stand and I could lift the Earth. Um, but actually we use something not dissimilar to, to Archimedes' point about levers when we work out the weights of massive things because we, aren't, we understand how gravity works. And Henry Cavendish, who was based in Cambridge a couple of hundred years ago, actually worked out how gravity works and, and, and managed to measure the gravitational attraction between two big objects in his laboratory, thus enabling us to work out how two very, very big objects like planets would interact. So what you can do is, for instance, you can have a look at how something the size of the sun interacts with something the size of the Earth or how something the size of the moon affects something the size of the Earth. And we know the distances between them and we know how gravity changes over distance. And so you can mathematically calculate an inferred weight for the Earth we also know quite a lot about the composition of the Earth, so we can work out to a reasonable degree of accuracy how much the Earth weighs. It's about 10 to the 24 kilograms, so that's 6 times 10 to the 24 kilos. That's 6 followed by 24 zeros, so um, that's quite a lot. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. I'm glad that sorted that out for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right now, let's go to the other phone. Dave, what's your question for Dr Chris? Um, Hi, Dave. <laughs> Um, you, you're aware of the ice cycle on the um, poles, aren't you? Yes. Well, I think I think I know what you mean. The snow falling in the centre and the ice actually moving out to the sea. Yeah. Coming off as icebergs. Um, is it possible that viruses that haven't been around for thousands of years suddenly turn up again because they've been in, trapped in the ice cycle? It's possible. Um, what scientists who have made ice core data available from both poles have found is that in those ice cores intriguingly, there are bacteria. Now, the big question is, are these bacteria which we have put in there by drilling out the ice core? Because bacteria are so small, and when you make these drilling sites, you make minute fractures in the ice, and it's possible that tiny microbes could pick their way in 
through those cracks and get inside the ice. But intriguingly, when scientists have looked at these ice cores, they have seen bacteria locked away inside the ice. And this suggests that the ice, which at the moment we've got ice cores going back about 800,000 years, this suggests that there are bacteria in there that could be 800,000 years old. Um, Beyond that, there are also samples of bacteria which have been recovered from the permafrost uh, in Alaska, which go back about 50,000, 60,000 years and are viable. And also scientists have even recovered bacteria which are locked away in amber in a sort of suspended animation going back 60 million years. So uh, I think it's perfectly possible that there are places on Earth where there could be viable organisms, whether they're viruses or bacteria. I I think it's all a bit academic. Um, But it's perfectly possible that if the conditions are right, simple life can be preserved for extended periods of time. And in ice, very cold temperatures, that's the perfect freezer to keep these things viable in. And so I think there's every reason to suspect that, that stuff could come out. Um, With viruses, though, it's a bit trickier because viruses are the ultimate parasite. They don't survive on their own. They need a cell to grow in because they're very, very simple organisms. They're just infectious bags of genes. So they need a cell to infect, to, to grow in, and then produce more viruses. Now, if a virus was locked away for, say, 60 million years, and then you brought it back out of the deep freeze and, and unleashed it, if there's not a cell around that that virus is well adapted to infect, then it won't be able to infect and grow because its host will have disappeared. So there's there's sort of double-edged thing going on here, sort of flip side of the coin. So it's possible there may be viruses loitering around that actually have no host for them anymore. But bacteria, on the other hand, are much more independent. So I think they're probably the best bet for things that we're going to find still existing today, uh, which have been frozen away for millions of years. I know I was under the impression that um, some viruses, at least, um, can turn into virtually inorganic Um, material when they're out of the body and then um, revert when they find a host? Well, viruses are the simplest form of life as we know if you want to call them life. Um, They are effectively a bag of genes, so you have genetic material in the centre of the virus and then you have, in the case of the long-lived viruses that are very stable, they have a very hard outer husk, a sort of coat made of tough protein which encloses these genes And they're a bit like a hand grenade, really, which has docking stations around the surface. And when the virus bumps into a cell that it can infect, those docking stations lock the virus onto the cell surface. And then, for some reason, the cell is persuaded to bring the virus inside. So if those kind of viruses are then ejected from a cell that's been infected and they end up in the environment, they can stay there for a long, long time without breaking down. And very good examples of that are things like foot and mouth virus, which is very stable, and norovirus. And if you've ever gone on a cruise and caught diarrhoea and vomiting from your cruise, it was almost certainly a norovirus that did it. They're very, very tough viruses. They'll hang around in the environment for a very long time without losing their infectivity. And you just have to get one or two of them in your body and you've got it. Is anthrax a virus? No, anthrax is a bacterium. bacterium. Um, it's a bacillus, and uh, that that too can turn into spores. Um, so these are inactive virus, uh, inactive bacteria, a bit like C. diff, Clostridium difficile, which yeah. causes diarrhoea in hospitals. This can also form spores, and these can exist in a sort of inert state in the soil for a very long time. And so that's why animals catch anthrax, because they snuffle around in the dirt. And then when people eat the animals or skin the animals and put the animals' hide over their shoulders, they get what's called hide carrier's shoulder, which is where people were were getting it. Or people who are unloading boats and getting fleeces used to breathe in the spores and then get wool sorter's lung, which was another manifestation of anthrax historically. Thank you, Dave. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now then, Dr Chris, um, what we want to know now uh, from Peter has called in. He says he wants to know if the bacteria in the clouds are dangerous when they fall to the air. 
only to a plant, Peter. Uh, these are Pseudomonas syringi. They're also the same kind of bacteria that they use in snowmaking cannons. Uh, Snowmax is the name of the product that you inject into your snow cannon. And because these bacteria can make ice form at a much higher temperature than it would do normally, they're very useful at making artificial snow. Uh, that's how they get themselves rained down out of the clouds, because they have on their surface these particular proteins which line up all the water molecules in such a, a configuration that it mimics ice, and this makes it much easier for ice to form in the first place. So you make a nice big ice crystal in your cloud, and this is what carries the bacterium back down to Earth. They're plant pathogens, so they land on plants, Plants have protective tissues to keep bacteria out, so what these bacteria do is they encourage ice crystals to form at a much higher temperature than they would do normally on the ground, and so you end up with the sort of bacterial equivalent of a ram raid powered by very powerful uh, spiky ice crystals which burst open the surface of the plant cells, and the bacteria then suck up contents from the plant and grow, and then they get blown back up into the cloud again with the next batch of wind, and this then carries them away into distant territories, and they come down again and, and repeat the whole process. So they're, they're very much plant pathogens, but other members of the Pseudomonas family can prey on humans, and they're a major, they're a major menace in hospitals. Pseudomonas aeruginosa, for example, causes chest infections in people with cystic fibrosis, and it can also cause skin infections in people who have bad burns. It's a scary world out there. Finally, Dr Chris, Simon has asked, if you could clone anyone in history, who would it be? I think everyone's expecting me to say something like Einstein. Um, I think probably uh, I'd, I'd be torn. Um, I'd quite like to uh, clone myself because uh, then I could actually cope with all the things I try and do in a day and never succeed. And I'd probably make a lot more people happy because I'd do all the things I claim I'm going to do and then let people down. Um, in terms of make, uh, for the good of the planet, I think probably some major major league scientists like people like Einstein and Newton would be very handy to have around because they could help us solve a whole lot of problems we're grappling with today. Um, other than that, uh, I think probably it's, it's, everyone's going to have their own sort of opinion on this, aren't they? Why don't we have a competition? Why don't, why don't everyone phone in and tell us who they would prefer to clone or see cloned and we'll air those views next week. Lovely. Thank you very much, Dr Chris. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 